folks, if once in a while you're not just kind of wrecked by what God's done for us, like, and you need to check your heart, check your thermometer a little bit, because it ought to wreck you once in a while. Um, I mean, I, think, I was thinking about Isaiah, you know, when, in, when Isaiah chapter 6, where he says, uh, when he sees the glory of the Lord, he says, I am undone. I'm wrecked. And the amazing thing is, is that he was looking at the glory of God, but we have the glory of God in us, right here all the time. And so I hope that once in a while you're brought to tears when you sing, when you pray, when you read his word, that it stirs something in you that just reminds you of how real all of this is. And maybe I'm extra sensitive this week because I've, I've met with some folks that are being baptized and I've just looked them in the eye and I've, I've read their stories and I've seen just how much this means to them, how radically they've, their hearts have been changed by Christ and it's just literally just turned their life completely around. And it's so refreshing to, to come back to that initial moment with people, you know, because it can get... I don't know. It can get stale sometimes. It can get routine for us sometimes when we lose sight of just how amazing God's love for us and His grace is. So, hey, sorry for the heavy moment. Um, last Sunday, we covered the first six verses of First Peter chapter 5. And we discuss the, the various roles that we play in the church and in life as we uh, looked at leaders and followers, or as Peter described it, sheep and shepherds. And we talked about the reality that um, no matter which place we find ourselves in at different times in our life, we're all followers of God. Sometimes he gives us a role as a leader. That the common thread that we all should be sharing, as Peter said, is that we all clothe ourselves in humility. We are all in the learning process, right? And so it's so important for us to be gracious with one another and just kind of know and expect that there's going to be rough patches. There's going to be seasons where leaders get it wrong, where followers don't follow very well. And just that as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we would be gracious with one another, believe the best about each other. And, and God is ardent that we remain humble, to the point where he reminds us of this verse that says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And we all want to end up on the right side of that equation, right? We, we don't want to be opposed by God. And that spirit of humility really ties into the verse we're going to start at today. So you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter, if you haven't already. Chapter 5, page 1112 in your pew Bibles. I would take a Kleenex if anybody has one. I'm going to be snotty on service if I don't. Thank you. Chapter 7, I mean verse 7, says this. It says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I'm going to turn off the mic. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And guys, it takes a humble spirit to cast your anxiety on God. 
A proud spirit says, hey, I got this. I can handle this on my own. I don't really need any help right now. A humble spirit acknowledges and recognizes, you know what, sometimes life is going to bring along some trials, some tests, some sufferings that you weren't created to handle on your own. And a humble spirit's going to acknowledge that and is going to invite God into that, invite others into that confusion and pain with them. But first of all, as we read this, we have to remember, and I've tried to bring this up several times, because context is so important when you read Scripture. You've got to think about who the author is, the time period, what's going on, what they've, what's happened in their life, the experiences they've had to understand their mindset as they communicate. So Peter is writing to the early church in the early 60s AD. We've talked about that this is a time of kind of intense persecution and it's going to keep ramping up. And I say that because I think it's important for us to understand that looking at their circumstances, some of these folks that are reading his letter are probably going to lay their life down at some point for Christ. They've got every right to be anxious. I mean, their life was on the line here. I'd be anxious too. (laughs) At that point, Christians were still being crucified. Emperor Nero used to take Christians and put them on a stake and burn them to light up his dinner parties. Like this stuff really happened to people, okay? So for them to be anxious is really understandable. But this verse is also powerful because of the current anxiety epidemic in America today. The media feeds our fears and insecurities about the latest act of terrorism or war or Zika or this election we're getting ready to endure or, gosh, I mean, you name it. I mean, and then you just look at even just the stuff we deal with on a normal week-to-week basis, our work, parenting, marriage, finances. But Americans are bracing, embracing anxiety like no other nation in the history of the world. So congratulations, guys. We are the world champions at worrying. We're the best. We won the most medals in the Summer Olympics, and we worry more than anyone else. I looked at some statistics about it this week. It said that about one in five or about 18% of Americans suffer from anxiety disorder. One in five. That's a lot of people in this room. As Americans, we spend over $2 billion a year on anti-anxiety medication. Women are twice as likely to be as affected as men. And I just kind of deduce that women are probably anxious about the fact that their husbands aren't worrying enough. (laughs) Why is this not bothering them? Why are they continuing to watch the football game when the world is falling apart, right? And all of this in a country where most, if not all, of our needs are met, our basic needs, food, shelter, clothing, education, health care, freedoms of all kinds. Countries around the world where every single day is a battle for survival, getting clean water, getting food for your family, they're facing civil war, genocide, Those countries don't worry as much as we do. That ought to make us stop and think a little bit (laughs) about what's going on in America. 
I read one report this week that attributed our high anxiety to three main factors. The first factor was a loss of community, a sense of community. We live in a, a transient society, people moving around quite a bit. Um, we live in kind of an isolated society, you know, a, a fenced-in yard, back porch kind of a thing instead of out in community. And so people are isolated. They don't know who they can trust. They're, they're moving to new towns and trying to learn, who, you know, who are the people around me? Who can I really share something with? Who can I put my, my hope in, my trust in? In a lot of countries of the world, and maybe you've visited places where people, they've never left the village they were born in. They live under the same roof with grandma, aunt, uncle, cousins, and some of you, that causes anxiety to think about that, right? <laughs> but maybe there's something in those familiar surroundings, those people that have been in your life the whole time that you know are there for you, that you can always count on, that brings a certain sense of, sense of peace that a lot of Americans don't have, The second anxiety-producing factor was the torrent of information that consumes us on an almost moment-by-moment basis. We know about every horror that's going on in the world in an instant, don't we? On Twitter or news feeds that we find, we don't even have to be in front of a TV like in the old days to hear about something. We're just constantly reminded of what's going on. And there are whole parts of the world that have no clue what's going on, right? They don't have phones. They don't have TVs. And, and they just live their life in their, in their community. And they don't know about the people that got shot here or the war that's going on over there. But we're keenly aware of every single thing that's potentially out there. And, and all of that is causing us to fret and fear at incredibly new levels. Just sure that the next tragedy is around our corner, right? It's coming to St. Joe. I live in the zoo and people got shot there, right? It's everywhere. The third factor of causing anxiety was an intolerant attitude toward negative feelings. As Americans, we are just intolerant towards unhappiness, right? The pursuit of happiness, it's part of the mantra of America. So instead of learning how to kind of sit in our pain and confusion... And maybe create some space to kind of contemplate what I might need to learn through some of the suffering that goes on in our life. Many of us work very hard to bury our hurt in addictions or in distractions, shopping sprees. In America, it's simply not accepted. It's not okay to be sad. Those emotions don't play well on Instagram and Facebook, right? Nobody wants to know how sad you are. And our anxiety issues either drive us away from people towards isolation or they drive us towards people in ways that are unhealthy, in relationships that are codependent, demanding, potentially abusive. So let me ask you this. As many of us professing Christians, followers of Christ, What does a watching world, what do our children learn about our Heavenly Father when they see us consumed with worry and anxiety? What does that communicate? Raise your hand. Yes, Wyatt. That God isn't enough. What else? Yeah. 
It's what? A lack of trust? Yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah, maybe that God isn't fixing the problem like we thought, that we can't really trust him with our, our pain and our, our worries, that he's not going to take care of us. Anything else? It's a good start. It's something interesting to think about because those little eyes are watching you. They're watching you, and they're learning about the Father through you. When potentially anxiety-producing moments come, where do our hearts and minds go? (laughs) (laughs) Cha-ching. To money, right? That was brilliant. (sighs) Oh, mercy. Do our... (laughs) This is so... Whew, I got to recover. That was awesome. When anxiety is kind of knocking at our door, do our minds go first to God? Or do they go to trying to really control the situation, control the people, manipulate the people to try to get what we want out of the situation? Maybe our heart goes towards fatalism and worst possible scenario situations. Or maybe we're indifferent or apathetic or just kind of try to numb it. We can learn a lot about what we believe about God based on how we respond to our circumstances. Read that again. Probably more than we're willing to admit. I can say a lot of things about what I believe about God until my life falls apart. (laughs) And then I'm like, you know, in hindsight, I look back on how I handled myself for several months maybe, and I'm like, man, that didn't communicate things very well, did it? I'm a pastor standing in front of three or 400 people every week, and I can't even get it right and trust God the way I know I should. But Jesus knew that we were people prone to worry. That's why the most often repeated command in the Bible is do not fear. Over 365 times in the Bible, one for every day of the year, some form of that command is in there. Do not fear, do not worry. One for every day of the year. There's actually desk calendars on verses for one of every day of the year of do not fear, do not worry type verses. Jesus knew that that was a struggle for us. But Jesus himself navigated so many situations and circumstances in his own life and ministry that could have been anxiety-producing for him. You think about the fact that the whole time he was ministering, the Roman Empire was killing other people who were claiming to be God, other false messiahs. His life was on the line. The Jewish religious leaders that were supposed to be on his team 
were constantly attacking him, trying to trap him and trick him, trying to figure out a way that they could justify killing him. His own disciples, who he was raising up to be the leaders that were going to take this ministry on after he knew he was going to be dying, were constantly asking just the goofiest questions and making huge mistakes and not really understanding his teaching. He had a lot to potentially worry about. Instead, he taught us, most famously in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he says, do not worry. I want you to turn your Bibles there real quick. You can hold your finger there in 1 Peter. Matthew chapter 6 is page 880. Jesus says, starting in uh, 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus says, do not worry. Why? Because you're much more valuable than birds and flowers. And he says, instead, do what? He says, seek first his kingdom. Put your attention there. Peter takes those same sentiments, and back in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And to cast literally means to throw. And so it's this idea of kind of like taking those burdens and worries that you're carrying around and throwing them onto God. And, and those kinds of sentiments are communicated all throughout the Bible. Just have a few verses here. Some Psalm 55, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Isaiah 46, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. And then most of you probably know Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It boils down to trust, doesn't it? Somebody mentioned it earlier, right? Jesus could navigate a lifetime of potentially anxiety-producing circumstances in his life and do it without sin because he trusted his heavenly Father. He trusted the heart, the intentions, the motives of his dad, even if his circumstances didn't always turn out exactly the way he 
wanted them to. It's easy to trust when you get what you want. And when you look at things from a purely logical standpoint, which I like to do, because I'm a rational person most of the time, all of our worry and anxiety seems kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, God couldn't be more clear, right? Do not worry. Couldn't be more clear. I've got you. I'm going to sustain you. Put your burdens on me, right? I, what are you getting so worked up about? It's, it's going to be okay. So why is it hard to believe him? Why is it hard to believe him? I'm asking you. Or maybe, why is it hard for you to believe him? Does that help? <laughs> yes. Because sometimes we don't like what God is taking us through. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. The reward just seems so much further away than the pain right now. Yeah. The reward seems so much further away than the pain right now. That's a big one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We're impatient. Yeah. He still lets bad things happen. There's no guarantee that it's all going to turn out well, right? Hmm. There's also another reason. Those were all good answers. And Peter addresses it in verse 8. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Another reason why it's so difficult is that we have an enemy, people. We spent, just spent a whole year talking about spiritual warfare, right? We have an enemy. And he loves nothing more than to get us distracted by worry, consumed with worry, going crazy over worry. Because he knows that if we're doing that, then we're probably not worshiping God. We're probably not connecting with others. We're probably not, you know, where we are looking to our own strength instead of his. And we're probably not impacting those around us, sharing our faith. And Satan comes in many different forms in scripture. At times, he's described and seen as a snake, a deceiver, who, who lies to us and tricks us. At other times, he's referred to as an angel of light. He comes dressed up in something that looks really good and attractive until he sucks you in and you kind of see behind the curtain and you see how destructive it really is. But Peter chooses to use a different image here. He says that Satan is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Well, first we have to understand, big picture, that the lion's been defanged on the cross. Okay, so he might be able to even kill us, kill us in our bodies, but he can't touch our souls. If we are in a relationship with God, our eternity has been sealed in Christ. He can't change that, okay? So we don't have to fear that. But he can 
roar at us, and he can intimidate us, and he can fill us with fear. Because, guys, he's seeking to devour us. Not to nibble on us a little bit or lick us. We're not talking about a kitty cat. He wants to consume us. Or like Jesus put it, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy our lives. It's hard to trust God because we have an enemy who's trying to make us not trust him. And if we don't recognize that, then it's very easy for us to lose the battle. Would you agree that it's very hard to be alert and sober-minded when we are at the same time filled with anxiety? (laughs) Those two don't go together, right? Because when we are filled with worry and fears, we have these enormous blinders on where all we can just see is the circumstances in front of us and we lose sight of the big picture. So what do we do with our hearts and minds when we feel anxiety knocking on the door and the enemy hitting us where he knows we're most vulnerable? Well, I've shared with you in the past the importance of Scripture in our lives, and I talked about in college, I memorized a bunch of verses. One of the first verses I ever memorized was Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Since then, you've been raised in Christ, right? Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on heavenly things, not on earthly things. And we need Scripture to combat the enemy and to remind us of what's true, where to set our hearts, where to set our minds when fear and worry and anxiety are coming at us the most. There's lots of verses like that. That's just one that stood out to me that I memorized a long time ago. My son Xavier is almost four, and he can be kind of manic at times. Especially like when he's tired. You know how your kids have that right before bedtime craziness where you're like, where did this energy come from? You should be exhausted. And he just gets wild. And like you can't talk to him. He's just somewhere else when you're trying to communicate to him. And so I found that the only way that I can really get him to focus on what I'm trying to tell him is just to beat that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> is to just grab him by the face, you know, not like crushing his head, but just gently, you know, and just kind of put the, the tunnel here. And so it's like, you know, our eyes are locking. I'll be like, buddy, you've got to settle down. We're going to put your jammies on, okay? Like it has to be like that. Amen? Yes. And I think that I want you to kind of take that imagery because I think that's what God wants to do with us. Even when we're 50 and we're filled with worry and anxiety, is he wants to grab us by the head and say, look at me. Do not worry. I've got you. It's going to be okay. Put your trust in me. Cast your anxiety in me. I'm faithful. I'm going to do all these things for you. 
Look at verse 9. It says, resist him, talking about the devil, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So the way to combat the enemy's attempts to devour our lives is to resist him and stand firm in our faith. And I was reading uh, one pastor's comments on this, uh, this week, and he said that when we feel most attacked is when we ought to be most prayerful. Because he said that when the enemy sees you turning towards God in those moments and moving towards him and towards intimacy with Christ, then the enemy's going to back off because that's the last thing he wants you to do is to connect with God. So when he sees you in those moments turning to him like you should, the enemy's going to be like, all right, this isn't working. (laughs) Coming up with a new plan. But when he sees you not turning towards God and getting all freaked out and roping in all your buddies who like to help you worry and trying to manipulate and control situations on your own and operate in your own strength, and he's like, oh, man, I've got him. And that's where he sinks his claws in, and he's like, I'm going to take them down. One way we stand firm is to remember, as Peter says, that we are a part of this family believers all around the world that are enduring the same kinds of thing. That's why we come here on Sunday morning to be reminded there's other people like me who are struggling and who are anxious at times, and we need each other. And we need a community of faith, and we need the honesty to admit that we need help. Because the devil is always trying to isolate us so he can lie to us. Or he's trying to fill us with shame that I'm feeling these things and nobody else is, and I'm not going to tell anybody because then I'll look foolish. He's trying to fill us with pride. I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody else. Anything to keep us from reaching out to God and our fellow Christians, he will do. I want to show you guys a video. I showed it to my staff and board about a year ago. It's uh, by a guy named Dr. Henry Cloud. He's uh, an author, speaker, clinical psychologist, Christian guy. Um, And I think it's pretty powerful talking about anxiety. So when we look on a world a country in America where church attendance is declining, becoming more and more secular, and you look at the raises, you know, the increase in anxiety, you can see how those two things correlate. When you look at the isolation and the lack of community that people experience, you can see why anxiety is such a big thing. And, and I, would, I would, as we ask this question, who's your monkey?, I would say first and foremost that your main monkey needs to be God, the first person you invite into the cage, because he is the only one that can completely provide for you what it is that you need in those times. Exactly. He's the only one that can bring you ultimate peace, ultimate joy, an ultimate sense of of security and love in the midst of that. But then I wouldn't stop there. I would bring as many other monkeys in your cage, fellow Christians that are going to help you get through things. But I also want to give you this warning. 
you need to be choosy about who those people are. Just because they're a Christian doesn't mean that they're always going to give you the best advice. And what I would encourage you to do is invite people into the cage of your turmoil and trial who are most concerned about your growth in your faith and at pointing out some of the blinders that you've had on that you haven't been able to see that love you enough to speak the truth and say, hey, (laughs) you got to see this differently. And I would be cautious of inviting friends in that just want to alleviate your pain, that just want to tell you what you want to hear, or maybe even join you in your worry. As we wrap up this study on Peter, we'll see in verse 10 and 11, the last bit of advice that he gives to the churches that are experiencing trials and suffering. Verse 10 says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter concludes with this confident prayer of what God will do. And Peter has seen it played out in his life. We've talked about his story. That that there was some suffering in Peter's life for a while. Most of it was (laughs) self-induced. But that when he came towards God, he ran towards God, and, and the relationship with Christ was restored. Jesus restored his life. He strengthened his faith, prepared him to be a good shepherd And by the way, just in case you're curious, there is no non-suffering version of being a follower of Christ. It's not like this, sorry Nick, there's not like this insurance policy you can get. Can I be a Christian? I'd like to pay a little extra money and have the non-suffering plan. And not even just for being a Christian, for being a human, there's no non-suffering plan. Because we live in a broken world that's fallen and random stuff happens. Sometimes we're in the wrong place at the wrong time when the tornado goes through our town. We're surrounded by other people who are broken, and sometimes we're just caught in the crossfire of their sin. There's nothing we can do about it. And then on top of that, we're also broken and making troubles for ourselves by the way that we sin and think. So we're surrounded by potential suffering And Jesus told us, in this world, there will be trouble. Again, he's hitting us straight. This is how it's going to be. But, he says, take care, because I've overcome the world. Take heart. So when trouble comes, we all have a choice, right? We have the choice to either trust God or not. To either cast our anxiety on him or to try to handle it on our own. Those are the choices that we have. But if we cooperate with him and we, we put some trust in him, he's got some amazing promises for us. He says, I will restore you. I will strengthen your faith. I will make you firm and steadfast, more like me. And as Peter said in verse 11, a God who can do that. And I think about, you know, uh, the verse in was it Ephesians or Philippians, I can't remember, 4, 6, and 7, you know, do not be anxious. But in all things, by prayer and petition, 
Let your request be known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. A God that can give us peace that surpasses all understandings in the midst of the worst things that could possibly happen to us in this world is a God that can be praised and adored. Now, before we conclude, I think it's really important that I cover all my bases here. So I want to skip down to verse 14 where it says, greet one another with the kiss of love. And my challenge to you is to kiss 10 people you don't know before you walk out the door today. And maybe you weren't anxious before you came in. Now your heart just went, oh my gosh. Because it's biblical, right? Maybe we need to get the kiss cam at Wellspring, just like at the Royals game. Be like, hey, greet your brother and sister with a holy kiss of love, right? All right, folks, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time today. Lord, 